0: Well, hello again, everyone. I'm Nurse Mo, and I am so excited to be with you here today on episode 173 of the Straight A Nursing Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about disseminated intravascular coagulation, which, yes, I did have to practice that a few times. It's a little early in the day, haven't had all my coffee yet, and that one is a mouthful. Probably why we typically just call it D-I-C. But before we dive into that, you guys know I love giving the listener shout outs. We recently hit 3 million podcast downloads, which is a really big deal, by the way. And uh, it's because of you guys. It's because of all of you that listen to the podcast and share it with your classmates. So thank you so, so much for doing that. And thank you to everyone who takes the time to write a review. That's one of the reasons it has such a great record, because people go to the podcast, they look at the reviews, And they see all the amazing things that you have to say. So this one goes out to Katarina, who says, thank you so much, Nurse Mo. I love your podcast. The podcast quizzes are phenomenal. And you just beam with care, support, and positivity every time you speak to us. I have recommended your podcast to everyone I know because it's worth it. Thank you again. So, Katerina, you are one of the reasons that we have hit such a huge, huge podcast milestone. So, thank you so very much. And if you're wondering what Katerina is talking about when she says the podcast quizzes every now and then in an episode... I will have a few questions at the end called pod quizzes. And there's a few episodes out there that are completely 100% pod quizzes, and you can find those here as well. If that style of studying and review really works for you, I have an entire podcast called Study Sesh where we just mainly do pod quizzes, but then we also do a few other fun things. There's some drills, which is just a really phenomenal way to repeat information over and over again so that it really drills into your head. So we do drills, we do case studies, and we do something called a power hour where we take a deep dive into a core foundation concept. So that is a premium podcast. You can get all the information about it at straightanursingstudent.com forward slash study dash sesh, sesh. So pod quizzes are super fun. And Katerina, I'm glad you love them as much as I do. So today we're talking about DIC. Again, that's disseminated intravascular coagulation. So what this is, and this is a little bit of an advanced topic, you guys. So if you're brand new students and some of this flashes over your head, don't stress. Listen anyway. You'll pick up pieces of it, and then when you go and you see something like this in clinical or you learn about it in class, then it will really, really stick and then come back and listen again, okay? So DIC is a type of coagulopathy that is typically seen, you'll see it a lot in patients who have an infection, like a sepsis infection, like a really bad infection, traumas, you see it in cancers and inflammatory states. You may also see it in obstetrical complications, and a common one would be placental abruption. It's referred to generally as a consumption coagulopathy, and it can develop very, very quickly, sometimes in a matter of hours, sometimes in days. Now, before we dive into talking all about DIC and the pathophysiology and the nursing implications and all of that, We do need to go over a few key terms, and don't throw anything at me, but we do need to talk a bit about the coagulation cascade, okay? I promise it will be painless. So a few key terms are thrombin, fibrinogen, and fibrin. These are some key players in DIC. So thrombin is an enzyme that facilitates blood clotting, and how it does that is it catalyzes the conversion of fibrinogen to fibrin. Okay, you got that? And then fibrinogen is a protein produced in the liver, and it is converted into fibrin during that blood clot formation process. Fibrin is the protein end product of that coagulation cascade, which we're going to talk about very briefly in a moment. Fibrin is this really tough protein, and it's arranged in like this fibrous mesh that impedes blood flow and creates a blood clot. Okay, so those are like the key players, the stars of the show when we're talking about DIC. So looking at that coagulation cascade, how coagulation happens. Let's say you've got a wound. Okay, let's just say that you've cut yourself shaving, right? So there's a bit of a wound there. So vessels upstream from the wound are going to vasoconstrict to try to staunch the flow of blood, right? And then platelets are going to arrive and the platelets get there and they start sealing off the wound. And this is called platelet aggregation, and it creates what's called a platelet plug. And platelet plugs are great, but it's not quite enough to really achieve hemostasis. So the coagulation cascade begins, kicks in, and this is that very complex pathway. I know you guys learned it in your anatomy and physiology class, and there are many clotting factors, and basically they cascade toward the end goal which is converting fibrinogen to fibrin and there are two pathways of that coagulation cascade remember there's that extrinsic pathway and the intrinsic pathway and what happens is these two pathways converge at the formation of factor 10a factor xa which cleaves prothrombin to form thrombin and you remember we just reviewed Thrombin's role in catalyzing the conversion of fibrinogen to fibrin, right? So thrombin converts fibrinogen to fibrin, the clot forms. So that's the basics of the coagulation cascade. Notice we didn't go over every single clotting factor. I promised you it would be simple, but I just wanted you to kind of have it in your head how this occurs in a normal physiologic response. So of course, when we're talking about pathophysiology, right, it's pathological, something not correct, not the normal response is happening. So DIC occurs when thrombin, remember thrombin's normal job is to convert fibrinogen to fibrin. DIC occurs when thrombin uncontrollably converts fibrinogen to fibrin. Okay, it's out of control. So initially, what do you think happens? So in that early stage of DIC, we get blood clots, and we get blood clots everywhere, system-wide blood clots. And what do you think that does to organs, tissues, limbs? They do not get properly perfused, and it can be so severe that they suffer permanent damage, people end up getting limbs amputated because of the damage and have organ failure or severe, severe organ dysfunction. So as DIC continues, can you guess what happens? Does the body have an infinite supply of clotting factors? So what happens as DIC continues is that the clotting factors, the platelets, these get used up faster than the body can make more and that's why it's called a consumption coagulopathy. And so once the patient's clotting factors, platelets are used up, they've got these clots all over the place. It's not like they're not in enough trouble as it is, right? Well, now on top of that, they have an extremely high risk for hemorrhage, internal hemorrhage, external hemorrhage, hemorrhaging all around. So it is a very, very serious condition. It is often deadly, and we're going to talk about it using the straight A nursing latte method. So you ready to get started? Let's do this. So the first letter in latte is L, and that stands for how does the patient look? And by this, we mean signs and symptoms, what are they complaining of, what do you notice about them, using all of your senses. So the patient with DIC may initially present with generalized or even just localized bruising. However, the question that is most likely to be on your exams, on your NCLEX, is the classic sign of DIC is petechia. And those are those pinpoint brown to purplish spots on the skin. Okay? Additionally, the patient may also have purpura, could have a rash, could have purple bigger spots, all of which indicate bleeding is occurring. Now, thinking about what's going on with the patient, it's no surprise that they may appear pale, they may feel fatigued because their hemoglobin is low, their hematocrit is low. They could also report localized pain, and they could be short of breath. If your hemoglobin is low, you're not getting enough oxygen saturation, you're not getting enough oxygen transporting around your bloodstream, you're going to feel short of breath. So those are some very classic signs of DIC. The key takeaway with this one is that petechia. Okay, now the A in LATTE stands for assess. How do we assess a patient who has DIC? So one of the things that you really want to do is perform a very thorough skin assessment of your patient. You're looking for that petechia, you're looking for bruising, swelling, Tenderness. An area that is often overlooked or not assessed in DIC is the oral mucosa. And a really good reason to assess the oral mucosa is that it will probably tend to bleed earlier than other parts of the body. You also want to pay close attention to any sites like IV sites. If they're oozing, that's a key indicator right there as well. You'll do a thorough head-to-toe assessment, looking at each body system for signs of dysfunction or signs of bleeding, of course. So what does that look like? What does that mean? Well, in the urinary system, because that's like one of the easiest ways to see it, is you would see blood in that urine. So maybe your Foley bag, you're looking at it, and that urine is a little pink, and then maybe even darker. You may even see... um actual b- blood clots coming through the urine. So look at the urine. A UA could also be done to assess for blood in the in the urine as well. In the GI system, you could see blood in the stool. And again, even if you can't see it, that's what that occult blood test will, will assess for. And then depending on what stage of DIC the patient is in, they are at risk for stroke, either ischemic or hemorrhagic, and signs to assess for neurologically would be that one-sided deficit, facial droops, changes in vision, double vision, blurry vision, loss of vision, headaches, slurred speech, decreased LOC, anything that would indicate a neurological impairment, neurological injury. Respiratory-wise, you're going to assess how is the patient breathing. They may have labored breathing. They may, again, have shortness of breath. And a really easy way to kind of observe for shortness of breath is just notice how many words the patient can speak before they have to stop and take a breath. You and I, talking together like this, I can go for a while before I stop to take a breath, right? But if I was really short of breath, I might only get three or four words out at a time before I have to stop and take a breath. Does the patient have any pain with their respirations? Do they have a lower oxygen saturation level? Both of those could indicate blood clots in the lung, which is a pulmonary embolism. You want to look at the patient's limbs. You're looking to see if the presentation matches bilaterally. Is one limb looking really, really pale, having loss of sensation, and the other one is not? Are the limbs cool to the touch? Again, looking for a loss of sensation, numbness, tingling, blue discoloration, dusky discoloration, modeling all can be indications of blood clots or you know, blood flow impairment in those limbs. And if that is not treated very promptly, it can lead to permanent damage, permanent dysfunction, and like I said earlier, even loss of that limb. If the patient is female and of menstruating age, ask about their last period. Did they bleed more than normal? Was the consistency different than normal? Did they notice clots, et cetera, et cetera? To assess for involvement of the cardiac system, you could ask the individual, are you having any chest pain? You could perform a 12-lead EKG to assess the heart rhythm. The presence of a clot can cause chest pain. It can cause dysrhythmias. So you want to be assessing for those. And then you want to assess if the patient has had any recent falls or any trauma, because if they have DIC and they fell recently, that site would have very, very higher risk for bleeding at that site, especially if they hit their head, which you really hope they did not. So the key takeaway here is you're going to do a thorough head to toe assessment, and you're looking for bleeding, and you're looking for organ involvement. Of course, you will also get a full set of vital signs, and what you would expect to probably see with someone who's bleeding would be higher heart rate, so a tachycardia, and a hypotension, very likely to also have an increased respiratory rate with a possible lower SpO2 if they're severely anemic or if they've had something like a pulmonary embolism. The first T in LATTE stands for tests. What tests will be ordered for this patient? So I mentioned a couple when we talked about assessment. So let's first talk about the lab tests for DIC screening and testing, like the blood tests that the patient would get. So platelets, very likely to be decreased in DIC. Fibrinogen, decreased. Fibrin degradation products may be ordered. That's a blood test, and that would be increased. Fibrinopeptide A would be increased. That's something that would be done for a screening. The D-dimer would be increased. And what other condition is D-dimer increased in? That would be in your DVTs, right? Your pulmonary embolisms, your DVTs. PTT would be decreased in the early stages and probably prolonged in those later stages, right? Because prolonged PTT means bleeding is occurring. Protime, prolonged. Very good. Prothrombin fragment is another one that could be done for the screening that could be increased. What do you think the INR would be? Yeah, it's going to be increased as well. And then what about the hemoglobin and hematocrit? Those are going to be decreased and continue to fall as the bleeding continues. And red blood cells, they'll be decreased due to bleeding, but also due to those red blood cells passing through partially clogged vessels. The red blood cells themselves get damaged, which leads to a hemolytic anemia. And then coagulation factors will be decreased, namely coag factors 1, 2, 8, 10, and 13. I don't think you need to go through that much detail. Just know that COAG factors will be decreased. So if the patient is presenting with chest pain, of course, a 12-lead EKG would be done. You're looking for any cardiac dysrhythmias. Possibly even a transthoracic echocardiogram could be conducted. Or a CT of the chest could be done to rule out acute myocardial infarction, see if there's something else that is going on with the patient. Urinalysis, like we mentioned earlier, could be performed to look for blood in the urine. Sometimes the blood in the urine is so subtle, especially initially, you can't see it with the eye, but it can be detected on a lab test. And then the stool sample, we talked about the occult blood, and that is bleeding from the GI tract that you can't visually notice. It's occult. It's secret. It's hiding. You find it through a lab test. And then, of course, any patients presenting with stroke-like symptoms, any changes in neurological status are going to get that STAT-HEAD-CT, and that STAT-HEAD-CT is going to look for bleeding, okay? If the STAT-HEAD-CT is negative, that does not mean the patient did not have a stroke. It means the patient did not have a hemorrhagic stroke. Further stroke workup could be an MRI or and an MRA. The key takeaway for the tests that are going to be conducted in DIC are going to be maybe like the whole screening panel. The key things are increased PTT, increased INR, decreased hemoglobin, decreased platelets. Everything else just kind of falls in with those things. So the second T is for treatments. What treatments are provided for a patient in DIC? So one of the key treatments for DIC is replacement therapy, replacing the platelets, replacing the clotting factors. So this would be platelet transfusion, cryoprecipitate, and fresh frozen plasma. If you hear someone say FFP, that's what they're referring to, fresh frozen plasma. And if you hear someone say jumbo FFP, I want to say that's three regular-sized FFPs all in one big bag. The patient who is actively bleeding may also need packed red blood cells as well. And then heparin is used for its anticoagulating properties. And from what I was able to surmise, heparin is the only anticoagulant used in DIC. You also want to make sure that the patient is on bleeding precautions. So any patient with suspected or confirmed DIC has to be on bleeding precautions for their own safety and and this could vary slightly but in general terms bleeding precautions are things like you you definitely want to avoid falls so this patient should not get up out of bed unassisted at all you want to make sure they've got their non-slip socks on of course you will in my facility i believe it's No IMs at all. So no IM injections. You want to minimize venipunctures. So not going in and poking them all the time. So a patient with DIC, if they have an art line in place, that's great because we can draw for labs from that arterial line. We're not having to go in and poke a vein every time we want to draw their labs. No razors, no flossing. Use a very soft bristled toothbrush or even just a tooth sponge And no knives with meals, nothing sharp, maybe not even a glass plate. I'm serious, you guys, like very, very, very careful bleeding precautions. They may get a paper plate and plastic cutlery, okay? So that key takeaway here with the treatment is basically replacing those clotting factors, replacing those platelets, PRBCs if they're needed, heparin if it's needed as an anticoagulant, And bleeding precautions. Huge eye towards patient safety here. And then the E in the latte method stands for educate. Nurses do a ton of teaching. So, how do you educate the patient or the patient's family about DIC? Of course, you always want to explain the basics of the disease condition, that in and of itself. It doesn't have its own specific treatment. Basically, we're going to try to control the underlying cause, address that. We'll be replacing those clotting factors. We'll be transfusing as needed, and the patient may need to take heparin, and some patients may need to take it long-term. So as the patient's going home, going to be discharged, you want to make sure they understand how to take their medication and bleeding precautions. That would be one of the biggest things that you would teach a patient with DIC. So additionally, if the doctor wants them to come in regularly to get their blood levels tested, they need to understand how often to do that as well. For the most part, the biggest education components are going to be bleeding precautions and to know when to call the MD. So How would you like to do a little bit of pod quizzing about DIC? You can give it a try. And if you love it, you can go check out Study Sesh, where we do all kinds of pod quizzing, you guys. Okay, so to do a pod quiz, I ask a question. I pause for a moment to give you time to answer. And then I tell you the answer. Basically, we're doing flashcards for your ears. So looking at DIC, what is the enzyme that catalyzes the conversion of fibrinogen to fibrin. That was thrombin. Excellent work. And which is the protein end product of the coagulation cascade? This is that tough protein that's arranged in a mesh to form that clot. What was that called? That is fibrin. Excellent, excellent. And then what are the two pathways of the coagulation cascade? The extrinsic pathway and the intrinsic pathway. Very, very good. So NDIC. We have thrombin uncontrollably doing what? Uncontrollably converting fibrinogen to fibrin. And what does this cause to happen system wide? Blood clots. Little tiny blood clots all over the place, maybe even big blood clots that can get into the coronary arteries or even into the vasculature of the lungs. And then what happens as the disease continues? So as DIC continues, we use up our platelets, we use up our clotting factors, and now the patient is at very high risk for bleeding. Excellent, excellent work. What would be that hallmark sign that I said was probably going to be on an exam for DIC when you're looking at their skin? Petechia. You could also see that purpura, those purplish spots that indicate bleeding is occurring or bruising on the individual as well. Okay, let's see. In DIC, you're looking at your lab tests. Will platelets be increased or decreased? Decreased. What about fibrinogen? Decreased. What about PTT? Let's say we're at the bleeding stage. Prolonged. The INR? It will be increased and the hemoglobin and hematocrit decreased. Very, very good. And then what are the replacement therapy items that the patient could receive aside from packed red blood cells? So that could be platelets cryoprecipitate and fresh frozen plasma. Excellent, excellent. And then how about bleeding precautions? Name a few of the safety factors with bleeding precautions. So, there are a lot. So, no IM injections would be one. No razors, that's very commonly listed. No flossing, soft toothbrush, or even a sponge. No ambulating unassisted because they're such, I mean, if they fall, they could just get so severely injured. And no knives, no playing with scissors. Definitely no running with scissors either. And then, um, The two main takeaways that you're going to teach the family or the patient as they are leaving the hospital, what do you want to make sure they know? Two of the biggest things you want them to know are the bleeding precautions to follow and how to safely and effectively take their anticoagulant medications. Okay, that was a little tiny pod quiz. How did you enjoy it? Did it help you think? through the problem, help you think through DIC. So if you liked it, if it really helped engage your brain, I want you to go check out study sesh, straightanursingstudent.com forward slash study dash sesh. So check that out. And if you like the latte method, you can go and check out the latte method template, which I will link to in the episode notes. So I will be talking with you next week about the 20 secrets of successful nursing students. But don't worry, we're not going to hit all 20 in one episode. I'm actually going to be taking these one at a time, maybe in some episodes, two or three at a time. But we're going to have a whole series talking about the 20 secrets of successful nursing students. So if you want to see what those are, come back and join me next week. Bye for now. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing. Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? We sure have. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast.